This is American Real, where we aim to inspire, empower, and enlighten you through the stories of our guests. Here's your host, Roger Brooks. So, Nick, uh, let's talk about your subtitle, how to develop any skill and excel at it. It sounds to me like there might be some things like we've been talking about, consistency of doing something to develop that skill. Do some of these tools and techniques apply across the board? Any profession, any skill, it's something that we created and it can be learned. So learning is our greatest power as a species. That's why everything we've built and everything we created comes from our ability to learn everything we have right now. So the idea is to make people better learners. And once you have that meta skill, you can apply it to anything you want. So there's a lot of the concept itself in an example, in a sport, in arts, and like how to transpose that, that knowledge into whatever it is that you're learning. So that's why it's how to develop any skill because it's the metal skill of learning how to learn, learning how to, how to master something. Let me guess, you're an entrepreneur looking for ways to grow your business online. And you've probably tried everything to grow your business, including social media, SEO, even paid ads, only to find out that nothing truly works. So what if I told you that writing a book that goes on to become a bestseller is the magic wand, and that you can do it in as little as 30 days, two weeks, or even over a weekend in some cases, without spending more than 10 minutes a day. Would you be interested? My name is Roger Brooks, and I'm the founder and host of American Real TV, where I interview world-class guests to empower others through the essence of story. But I didn't get here overnight, and my mission certainly doesn't end here. Ever since I was a little boy, it's been my dream to empower others through the craft of writing and storytelling. And throughout my life, I came across several mentors who pushed me toward my passion for writing books and helping others to do the same. There is no greater joy than to be working with aspiring authors and to help them establish true credibility within their industry by writing and publishing their first book, which I'm proud to say have all gone on to become bestsellers. Now, you're seeing this video because I just opened enrollment for my new book writing program, where I promise to take you from page one to published in 90 days or less. I will be personally working with you to overcome the same fears and obstacles that kept me from pursuing my dreams all of those years. Simply click on the link below to see how I could help you become a first-time best-selling author. I look forward to seeing you on the inside. This is American Real. I am Roger Brooks. My guest today is Nick Velasquez. You are a passionate learner and devoted student of mastery. You founded the popular blog, unlimitedmastery.com, where you write about learning science, peak performance, creativity, and mastering skills. Your writing has been featured in outlets such as Time Magazine, Thrive Global, and Thought Catalog. You speak multiple languages, Nick, and you spend your time between Tokyo and Montreal, where you are today. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, man. And uh, I tell you what, Tokyo and Montreal, uh, not too many people that I know split their time between those two 
amazing cities. How did that happen? Yes. Well, I'm originally from South America. So that's somewhere else that I go to. Uh, Medellin, Colombia. Oh, wow. Yes. Wonderful. It's a really great city. So yeah, I've spent my time basically in three cities, but I spend most of the time in either Montreal, where I built my business and I have most of my life, and Tokyo because I fell in love with the place. So every year I try to go there for about three, four months and just be there. That's how much I love it. Um, Japan is amazing. It's just the people, they're so friendly, so polite. And that's what I enjoy so much about being there. I have to come back because my life is here and I enjoy the summer in Canada. It's really fun. There's a lot of festivals and things going on. So it's a nice mix, just being in one place and the other. I bet. Two great, great cities. I've had the opportunity to spend some time in Tokyo as well. Uh, yeah. Spent three months in Japan, actually, when I was uh, about nice. 20 years old. So I agree with you. It's, a, it's an amazing culture. The people yes. are phenomenal. I learned so much by being in Japan, learning some of the language and just mm -hmm. some of the customs. So uh, and, and they treated me like gold. So oh, yes. uh, just just wonderful <laughs> that's what makes you like, fall in love. It, it doesn't take long. That's true. And from the moment you're you get there, you realize this is going to be different. And from all the places that I've traveled to, Japan is the only place where I felt that I was dropped in a different world. Oh, me too. It's completely different. Completely different. Yes. I agree. I, I felt like I was somewhere else, <laughs> not on yes. not on planet Earth, but then it really grows on you, you know? Uh -huh. Is that how you felt as well? Yes, for sure. And for some reason, you also start feeling like part of something bigger because they're so community-oriented. Instead of individual-centered, they're like community-centered. Um, so you feel everyone trying to do things to not bother other people and to keep like the, uh, um, how, what would you say that? The, uh, the balance between everyone. So keep things okay. So you notice that people, for example, don't honk on the street. So if someone cuts you off, okay, you're angry, but if you honk, now you're bothering everyone else around you. So you don't do it. Or you go on the metro and it's rush hour. It's packed, but then it's super quiet because everyone's trying to respect everyone else's right to silence and to calm. It's already too hectic, so why not? And just that idea of keeping everyone else in mind and trying to provide a, a good environment for everyone else, that just makes life so much easier. I feel like, it's, it's on, I feel like I'm on vacation every time I'm there. There's Even so much working, to learn. Doesn't matter. Yes, oh, I agree. There's so much to learn from their culture. And one of the things that stood out to me that I still remember, and I actually just talked about this with a friend this week, is that one of the things I loved is the company that I was working with. Um, it was more of an internship. Every morning, the whole company would go down into the parking lot and we would do like calisthenics. We would do some exercising wow. and breathing and, and, and everyone felt good before the day started. And I thought that was something really neat for a company to do. I, you know, yes. coming from America, I've never heard or seen anything like that before. So I just love that. And, and people really... It, it brought them together by doing that in the morning and it just kind of set the tone for the day. Uh, that's amazing. And it makes sense because they're all, all about the group and keeping a good balance between everyone. Whereas uh, North America, we're more on the individual side, like everyone on their own. Uh, but then you feel the difference while you're there. Everyone's trying to help you. If you open up a map, you have three Japanese people helping you out. It's, 
it's just something else. I've never experienced that before. And that's why I love it. I wish I could go and live there at one point. Yes. And let me see if I can remember direction. Um, do you speak Japanese? A little bit. Uh, I think straight is ma Masugi. Masugi? Straight. Yeah. Hidi is left. Hidari. Hidari and Hidi. Is and Migi. Migi. That's it. Migi. Yes. A lot of years. Twenty <laughs> over thirty years it's been. So wow, but you yeah. still remember. That's good. I remember a little bit. I remember yeah. a little bit, and I definitely remember. I went to school, so I remember a lot of the the training of the alphabet, and I can't remember yeah. how many characters are in the alphabet, but I remember it was a lot. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. And studying Japanese for me is the only language that I tried to learn because I wanted to. Mm -hmm. So English, my parents forced me. They said you need to study English. That's you're going to need this in your life, basically. They're like, trust us, you're going to need this. And I'm glad. I'm glad they forced me to study English. Then French, because I moved to Montreal. So French is their, their official language here, and they're very protected of it. So I thought it would be a nice thing to try to learn the language. You'll be polite, just not starting a conversation in English. But then Japanese was the only one that I don't have a need for Japanese. I don't have a use for Japanese. I just want to learn Japanese so I can talk to Japanese people. That, that's it. That's all I want. I don't need it for work. I don't need it for anything. So it's, it's been a different experience because just taking on a language because you want to. And not many people speak Japanese. It's only if you fall in love with Japan. And that's why when you're there and you speak two, three words of Japanese, they, they're amazed. Love yes, they, they love you. <laughs> you're a superhero. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> no, that's great. It's so much fun. Cool place. I could talk about that forever. And Colombia's home. Colombia's home. Yes. Another beautiful country. It's, it's a very nice place. What I miss the most. So I, I've been living in Canada for about 10 years now. What I miss the most about Colombia is just the, the warmth of people there. And I feel like I've, I've lost a little bit of that because here, the culture is a little bit more distant. And it's not that it's a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. Um, so they're more distant. And so when you're trying to be too friendly, then it, it comes across as you're trying, you're setting up something because then you're going to ask for something else or like, what is this person trying to get out of me? Uh, and then you have to scale back. It's, oh, I need to be just more cut and dry because it's not so well received. They're not used to it. And, and I've lost a little bit of that friendliness. When I go back to visit, I see my friends and like how they treat people. It's like, oh, wow, I forgot. I forgot some of that. But you feel like people are just very friendly. They have a different attitude towards life. They're very happy. Consider the circumstances because it's, it's, it is a poor country and we deal with a lot of crisis. And yet people just seem to enjoy life even more than I see here in Montreal. Strange. Amazing. Yeah, I had a former co-worker and his wife was from Colombia. They used to go every couple of years for vacation. And he mm. said he just fell in love with it. And it's definitely a place that he feels yeah. everyone should visit. So I would love to make that trip someday. And I understand yes. that people are very, very welcoming and, and loving. So um, I'm very sure. Very much so. Yes. I, I know this uh, real estate investor from the U.S. and he spends most of his time in Medellin. And when I met him, he's please, whenever you meet someone in the States or in Canada, tell them that Colombia is horrible. That, that <laughs> is the worst place because I don't want them to come here and then ruin it for me. <laughs> this is paradise. <laughs> yeah. Well, are you familiar with the, the show Entourage? 
I, I know what it is, but I haven't watched it. Yeah, well, it, there was a big part of it where uh, one of the characters invested into a, a tequila company and it was yeah. out of Medellin. So, so there were several episodes there. So you got a really good flavor of what, what it was like mm -hmm. there in the culture and yep. um, kind of put it on the map for a lot of people in the U.S. that, that didn't know about it, those that followed that show. Yeah, it's a great place. And now that it's getting safer, you see more and more foreigners coming in and staying. They fall in love with the place. Um, what's not to like? People are friendly. Weather is nice. It's all good. Absolutely. Yes. So, Nick, let's talk about your book, Learn, Improve, Master. First of all, what made you come up with that title? I know it's very closely associated with your work, but I love it. It's so succinct, to the point, and kind of tells what you're going to, you know, reveal inside the book itself. Sure. So the title came about as I'm organizing all the information, you start seeing a, a pattern, a structure. And so it was a natural progression. You start learning something, then you get better at it. And then eventually you plan on mastering it. So that kind of came on that progression. I just titled the different sections and I thought, why would not be this, the title of the book? It's exactly what the book means. It's what's about. And it will be clear for anyone seeing the title. This is what I'm getting. Um, so I, I had two ideas for titles, like when I narrowed down all the different ideas into two of them and the question came in, what would the book call itself if it could? And it was just evident. It's like, th this is the title. Wow. I get the chills thinking about that. <laughs> I could just imagine that moment for you. Yes. Yes. I, I think it, it is the right title. That's how the book needed to be. And it just says what it is. So talk about, if you don't mind, because we, we actually offer a book writing program as part of our academy. And I, I just love, like, I love helping people write books. Here's, here's one of our new authors that put out a book. Oh, amazing. Another one. Yeah. So it's, it's just such a great feeling when someone goes through our program to write a book and then they actually come out on the other side with that book. Uh -huh. Please talk about the process for you. What, what gave you the courage? Because a lot of people have a book idea, but they're fearful. Mm -hmm you know, to actually dive into it and do it. And can you talk, talk a little bit about the, the, the process itself before we talk about the content? Oh, sure. I would love to talk about the process. Um, everything came about because I've always been obsessed with learning. I'm always taking on new hobbies. Everything has its own magic. So I was trying to learn too much, but the time is not enough. And I was frustrated by how difficult it was going from knowing about something to knowing how to do it. So you can learn a lot about painting, but not know how to paint. Um, so I was frustrated of creating that bridge. And that led me into years of research, trying to find methods to optimize the learning process just so I could learn more. So originally I was going to create, I wanted to find this book and I couldn't find it. So I started reading everything I could on neuroscience, learning, uh, peak performance, mastery. And I started compiling all the information the goal was to create a guide for myself that I could use for the rest of my life. Halfway through the process, I figured if I'm doing all this work, I might as well just put it in a book format and solve this problem for everyone else. Wow. But had I known the amount of work that was ahead of me, <laughs> I don't think I would have done it. I'm lucky that I was ignorant to the process and, and that I was so in love with this subject. Otherwise, I don't think the book would exist. Yeah. Uh, while I was writing it, then I fell in love with the writing craft. And, but that's a different subject. Yeah. No, I'm so glad you talk about that. Cause actually that's, that's one of the techniques we use 
to get people through the first time they're writing a book because it can be extremely overwhelming. So what we try to do is really dumb things down and to make the process so simple that it's foolproof and that the concept is to write one to two pages a day for 90 days. Mm -hmm. And that way it's not as overwhelming. So if people stick to that and and many of them do, then (laughs) before they know it, they're done and and they don't even realize what they did. But if, if you think too hard about it in the beginning and experience what you did and many, many other people do of the research and, you know, it could be extremely overwhelming. So first of all, congratulations for getting it done because it's not easy. 99% of people that set out to write a book fail. So because they just don't have the tools to, to get over the goal line. Right. So that's just awesome that you did it. And and you're going to help so many people um, that are looking for the same product that you were looking for that didn't exist. That is the goal. Yes. I'll share with you a couple of stories about the writing process. Um, One of the things, and I've heard this from different authors that said, well, you will only write the book if it's a book that you cannot not write. Like it's something that you have to get out of yourself. If you just kind of think, oh, that's a nice idea. That's not going to work. But if you have this thing that I don't want to live my life without putting this on paper, then that's the book you're going to write because that drive is going to keep you in the process. Otherwise, it's really difficult. So a funny story. Uh, My editor had sent me the first correction of everything. And I have worked through all these corrections for a couple months, about four months or so. And then I sent everything that I corrected. I sent it back to her. Then I go to my local Starbucks where I was writing every day, open my computer and I see an email from her and he has the file again. And I open it up and he has twice as many corrections to make. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what did I do wrong? Like what happened? I just did everything she asked me. So I sent her an email. What happened? I see that you're sending me way more corrections to make all these notes what did I do wrong? And she said, no, the first time was just like the broad strokes. Now we're really digging into it. I I didn't know what to do. Like I had just arrived to the Starbucks to write and I read that email. I closed my laptop and I left. Like, I I don't think I can finish this, but you're so invested now. Right. (laughs) There's no way back. But I remember just being heartbroken. I, I just took four months to do these corrections and now it's twice as many. How long is this going to take? And the only thing that got me through it was, let's just take it one day at a time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just keep writing. Just keep writing. Don't think about finishing. Just think about today. Yeah. I don't, we don't know tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow I won't write. It doesn't matter what happens tomorrow. I'll just work on today. And this is a strategy. Um, I talk about it also in the book with all the respect and admiration that recovering alcoholics and addicts deserve that is the strategy that they use. They're taught to win the day. Like forget about the past, forget about what you did yesterday and don't think about tomorrow. Don't think I'm not gonna drink for the rest of my life. That's too overwhelming. Just think I'm not gonna drink today. And that's it. Tomorrow I don't know, yesterday I don't care. So, and that's kind of the attitude when you take these really long-term projects of saying, I don't know if today, tomorrow I'm gonna do it. I'm, already, I'm not gonna think about how tired I am from doing this for months. I'm just going to think about today. I'm just going to write today for two hours. That's it. So smart. Two hours after two hours. And that's how you get there. It's very humbling because you need to break it down in that sense. And the same with exercising. So for me, writing and exercising taught me that lesson. You can't do everything you want to do in one day or one week or one month. You just have to put in the work every day. And you see it from masters across fields, the, how they 
they break it down one day at a time. Yeah, no doubt. And look, uh, so much of what happens in our world, you know, when someone's a master at anything, we'll get into this, you know, because this is what you do. Um, and I'm, believe me, a novice uh, at, at best. But I, one thing I do know is that no matter what it is, that technique works when you do a little bit each day. And I love the fact that yes. you brought about winning the day. I, I had the chance to interview um, someone about, I don't know, six months ago, and he's a recovering um, um, cocaine addict. And he said, he, when he wakes up in the morning, he prays, that's the first thing he does. And yeah. he just asks God to help him get through the day. That's it. And he does that every single day. And it, you know, mm -hmm. when you just said that now, it, it just brought that spark to me that, you know, we think about things in our lives, like writing a book or, you know, losing weight or going to the gym, you know, these things that we'd like to do. But when it comes to the most basic part of life, and that's living life um, to get through the day without having a drink or without putting a drug into your body. And, and there's all these forces that are, are against you. Um, you know, I, I guess my question is for you is outside of things like drug and drugs and alcohol, how difficult is it for people to get through something like weight loss, like mm -hmm. going to the gym? Is it as hard or, or, you know, physiologically speaking, physiologically, yes. yeah, is it, is it different? Well, it has to be different because there is the, the component of neurochemistry related to addiction. Um, so that would just be kind of a, a analogy to use for the things we want to work on every day. Um, for people wanting to get in shape or learning something, I think a big part is just we always have resistance. And sometimes we forget that even the great uh, sportsmen or sportswomen, artists, they also feel resistance. We think that they don't. So there is this story from Usain Bolt. And he's, I was watching his documentary and he said, like, some days you wake up and you know you got to train and you know it's going to be hard and you don't want to. You don't want to. But you do it. And you think that Usain Bolt would just show up like all happy and smiling, right. like you always see him in interviews. And like, no. Um, so there is this uh, also this video of him and he's, he's practicing, he's running. And then he stops and starts, starts throwing up and then keeps running like it's nothing. I'm like, wait, what? And I thought that maybe they added that for dramatic purposes or to make him look larger than life. Anything that would make me feel better about myself <laughs> and my own <laughs> pathetic efforts. And then, no, then he's explaining, for example, when he lost against Blake before, I think it was the Rio Olympics for, for the qualifiers. He said, the amount of work that I put in, I was throwing up every day. Oof. And you don't think of that and it's really hard for them. So we assume that masters are cut from, are cut from a different cloth. And no, it's the same. It's just that they push through that resistance, but we all feel it. I, a big part of my life is exercising. I train almost every day hmm. and I like doing it every day. And there's not a single day that I don't feel resistance. Hmm. Every day that I wake up and I say, wow, I'm so excited. I'm going to go work out. Never. <laughs> it has not happened. 
<laughs> but at one point it becomes easier. Like it's a routine. You just wake up and you go straight to working out, but there's always some resistance. Like, do I really feel like doing it? And the moment you ask that question, you already lost half the battle. If you ask, do I feel like doing it? Because most of the time you won't. And it's the same for writing or any craft because it takes stretching. It takes um, effort. There's struggle. That's what we're trying to avoid. And that's why it's difficult. So I think for some people is they don't do the things because, because they have unrealistic expectations. They assume that it should be easy, that it should feel like it, that um, they should have some talent for it. And all those are just misconceptions. Talent doesn't play as big as a role as we like to think. And learning takes time. It's tough. It's not always easy. And sometimes we assume, oh, I'm not getting it quickly. So maybe I don't have the talent for it. I should quit. Like, no, that's the process. Everyone has to go through it. And even geniuses from history, like the so-called prodigies, they still had to go through the process. Like Mozart was not born playing piano. Right. He had to learn to play and right. make tons of mistakes along the way. Yeah. Michelangelo just, back here too. He, yeah. <laughs> same thing. Same thing. Yes. So Nick, uh, let's talk about your subtitle. Uh, that's sure. what I wanted to get to next. How to develop any skill and excel at it. Now that's, sure. that's pretty broad. So you mm. took on th this... And I, I have not read your book. I can't wait to read it because I, I like you, I'm a learner. You know, I constantly want mm. to learn more. But to me, this seems like such a big thing to take on. Did it feel that way when you're, again, it's just still talking about the writing process, mm -hmm. taking this on, how to develop any skill and excel at it? It sounds to me like there might be some things like we've been talking about, consistency um, of doing something, you know, um, to develop that skill, does it, do, do some of these tools and techniques apply across the board? Is that what you're trying to help people with? Exactly. Yes. So the idea is, um, meta learning. So learning how to learn, which applies to anything. Wow. Because everything we do, like we've created it as a species, like these things didn't exist in nature, like playing hockey or playing football. No, we made up those things. So any profession, any skill, it's something that we created. And it can be learned. So learning is our greatest power as a species. That's why everything we built and everything we created comes from our ability to learn. Everything we have right now. So the idea is to make people better learners. And once you have that metal meta skill, you can apply it to anything you want. So one of the goals in writing the book was this needs to be general enough that we can apply it to anything we want. It could be art. It could be sports. It could be a profession. But the examples need to be specific enough that you can tell, okay, I understand what he's saying. This is not abstract. So there was a balancing act between generality and specificity that it was very delicate. And a lot of thought went into that. It's like, I need to use the examples that can't be too specific also because then, oh, this is about learning guitar. No, I'm just using guitar to illustrate the point. So, and then the content needed to be general. So there's a lot of the concept itself in an example, in a sport, in arts, and like how to transpose that, that knowledge into whatever it is that you're learning. So that's why it's how to develop any skill because it's the metal skill of learning how to learn, learning how to, how to master something. That's how it came about. Wow. So can you give us an example of learning how to learn? What, what exactly does that mean? Um, can you go into sure. a little bit more depth about that? For sure. So there are different... There's 
different steps in the learning process. So we go through understanding something, then memorizing. And let's stop there for a moment just so we explain the difference. Uh, let's imagine that you're reading a book on first aid and you understand all the different steps, but then you find someone on the street needing first aid and you don't remember them. So what's happening? Well, understanding is a completely different process than memorizing. Understanding is about making sense of information. Memorizing is about internalizing that information. So then I'm breaking down each step in the learning process and explaining the principles and strategies of each one. Mm -hmm. Let's say understanding there are certain principles that help us understand information better and there are strategies to use. So then you have understanding, memorizing, practice, bridge, which is how we tra start transposing the skills we develop in practice into performance, which is the last step. That's the learning process, each step with principles and strategies. Then we go into improving. How do we improve our skills? The biggest part of improvement is feedback. We need to know what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. And that requires that we either see ourselves in the mirror or we record ourselves, or we can uh, have the help of someone to tell us what's going on and like what's okay, what's not. That's the idea of writers working with editors. Sometimes we turn blind into our own mistakes. So we need someone that can tell us, look, here you're making this mistake and now, okay, now we have something else in your toolbox. So improving has a lot to do with feedback and also overcoming challenges. So I talk a lot about the different challenges that are gonna come in the learning process, such as impatience, um, frustration, plateaus, and mistakes and setbacks, which is one of the biggest ones that hold people back. Sometimes you, you start failing and you think this is not for me. No, everyone fails. That's what it is. Every sports person you can imagine could be at the top of their game and they still had to learn, go through the process, make tons of mistakes. Then we get into mastery. And mastery, the process itself doesn't change. We're still practicing, we're still learning in the same way, we're still using feedback, but mastery requires a change in my mindset, most of all. Because putting in the work is not that difficult. If you think about it, it's two, three hours of focused practice every day. The difficult thing is doing it day after day after day for years. So that requires that we have a long-term commitment and do the work every day, which is what we were talking about before. That's what separates someone from not being a master to becoming a master. The long-term commitment saying, I'm gonna be in this craft for as long as it takes because it's what I love, because it's what I wanna do, even if it takes years. And the other part is gonna, I'm gonna be doing the work every single day. And just those two things alone will take you farther than any hack or any other strategy that, that is out there. So question for you, uh, just backing up just a little bit on the feedback part with learning. Um, does it get to a point where you can get feedback? Like for example, when you, when you did your second round of changes for the book and then you sent it to the editor and she came back with another huge third round and you said, wait, 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 I, I, it's at a point where I, where I want it. I don't want to go any further with it. Mm -hmm. is there, I guess my point is, is there a point where you have to look internally to say, okay, I could always get feedback and mm -hmm. feedback had come in many different you know, yes. ways, shapes, and forms, but is there a point where you have to take your own accountability and responsibility to say, I'm ready, it's, it's done, whether it's this book or whether it's whatever it may be that you're trying to, to learn. Mm. That's a great point. And I'll give you a couple of examples of 
what it was for me writing the book. Um, and I talk about, talk about it in the book, this idea of bestism, is, which is different from perfectionism. Okay. So perf perfectionism is a trap. We can never be, make something perfect, perfect or be perfect. It, so it is a trap and most often a form of procrastination caused by fear. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of judgment. And that's why we keep working on the thing, trying to make it even better. It's like, it's not perfect yet. I don't want to put it out. So perfectionism is a, is a trap. But also there is this idea people have been repeating very often of done is better than perfect. Mm -hmm. Yes, because we go back to the perfectionism. It's a trap. But also just getting it out there because you're afraid or you don't want, you're too lazy to do the hard work. And that's mediocre. So there is a point in between. Just getting it done to get it done, rushing to the finish line, that's, that's really mediocre. That shouldn't be the way. It's like, oh, well, it's done. And that's better than having it perfect. So the idea I'm proposing is bestism. You work on it until you know that's the best you can do, even if far from perfect. And deep down, we know if we can do better. We know how much effort we put into it. So specific example, I was working on this paragraph. I must have rewritten that. It's a section, maybe two paragraphs must have rewritten that section some 30 or 40 times. And it came to a point that I said, I can't make it better. My skills as a writer do not allow me to make these paragraphs better. I have to stop here and move on. But I had to get to that point yes. where I knew now my skills don't allow me. So I wrote the best book I could possibly write as a writer. Now my skills are getting better. I could write something better. I could go back and make it better. But at one point it's like, with my current skills, this is the best I can do. Now it's time to stop. I love that. And we know it. Deep down, we know if we've done a good job or not. Yes. Wow, I've, ne I've never heard that term, bestism. So I'm glad you brought that to my attention today. Uh, again, I love learning from people, and that's something new for me. Is that a term that's widely used out of curiosity? I don't know. Maybe someone else had, had used it before. But I it's came yours. up with it. Just, I, I came it. up with it thinking about it. But maybe someone else had used it before. I don't know. Well, it's I mean, just, it came that idea when I was just on those finishing rounds. Yes. I, I came into that internal discussion of like, am I trying to make this perfect? I'm like, no, but then trying to get to the finish line, just putting it out there because I don't want to do the hard work of revisiting, then that's not okay. That's not the standard of quality I want in my book. And that's what pushed me into this idea of bestism. I'll just do the best I possibly can. And that should be enough. Wow. Well, Nick, you may have a second book in you just called Bestism because I love that. And there could be a whole book written about that. That's awesome. awesome. Thank That's you. Great. Okay. So back to mastery. So um, what's your definition of mastery? So if I'm learning, right, I'm, I'm learning about, so, you know, I'm, I'm studying, um, say this woman who I interviewed earlier wrote a book on cerebral palsy. And she spent, you know, I don't know, two years writing the book, but her son, you know, lived 20 some years with it um, before he, you know, moved on to, to live on his own. So she really knows about cerebral palsy. Um, where's, where's the point of mastering something? And what's your definition of, of mastery? Sure. So one of the things I talk about is that I, I do not give a definition for mastery. And if you go on that part of the book, I just start saying like, it's hard to condense mastery into a definition. The concept is too great to be contained. It's too big to be reduced. 
And it will be hard to come up with a definition that everyone would agree on. So what I try to do is explain the different elements that are recurrently present in mastery, such as proficiency, that's one. Consistency, that's another one. So masters perform at a high level on a consistent basis. It's not about creating one single masterpiece and then you're a master. No, it's in the recurring display of high performance or high, like good quality work that you start considering someone to be a master. So another point would be the internal um, representations of the, of, the, of the craft. So when you look at chess masters, they see a different board than the rest of us because they look at it as a narrative. It's like areas of tension and what's happening. They see a different board game and that comes with a lot of experience. So experience being another point of mastery is like, have you been spending a lot of time in this craft to understand the intricacies of it? The other one is a developed intuition. So we talk a lot about intuition and people say, trust your intuition. My point and what I saw about studying mastery is, no, you can't trust your intuition until you have refined it. So masters can trust their intuition because now it's an emotional encoding of their craft. They're fused with their craft. So they should trust their emotions and what to do because now has been refined, it's been worked on and improved over the years. But let's say for me, if I walked into a basketball court and say, well, I'm going to trust my intuition. No, because you, you don't know what this is. <laughs> so That's you trust your point. intuition once you've developed it. Got it. That comes at that point. So there are many aspects, many points about mastery. It will be too hard to condense into a definition. So what I try to do is, hey, let's talk about every element that composes mastery. That I believe is a better discussion to have. Um, another point is the immersion in the craft. All of the masters that I studied, they're kind of possessed by this demon of they can't stop doing what they like. They're so immersed in it. And not just creating work, but also studying the craft itself. So they're not only practitioners, but student of the craft. Wow. I remember seeing this documentary of um, Tom Brady. So it's Tom versus time. The amount of, the amount of time that he spends watching games what they call like watching film, mm -hmm. it, it's insane. Uh, he's studying the game to this point. And many people could argue he's one, he's the greatest quarterback ever. I'm not much of a fan of football, but I studied him just because his level of mastery of the game. And he spends just as, as much playing and studying the game. So that's another point of mastery. And to kind of bring this to the, to the real world for people. So someone like a Tom Brady who is watching film say, you know, much more than, than the average quarterback is watching film. Mm -hmm. Maybe he's taking that onto the field to take the game to a whole different level, like, like the chessboard. He, he may see things differently when, when, when the defense is lined up versus someone who may not be studying as much. Is that, do I have that right? Yes. So Maybe. it comes, part is experience. He's been in the game for a long time. So he's seen a lot. He's experienced a lot but also he studies. Studying is another way of gaining experience. And then you put that into practice and then gain new knowledge. So just talking about that subject, Brady said one of the things that struck me the most uh, about mastery, I've, I don't think I've ever heard any, not necessarily a definition, but any expression about mastery that was so raw. He said, if you want to compete against me, you better be willing to give up your life because I've given up mine. Wow. <laughs> wow. Uh, 
Uh, it gives me shivers thinking about that. And like I said, I'm not a fan of football. I'm not even a fan of Brady. But just that definition, like respect. Yeah, That's exactly what it is. Absolutely. Your life has been playing this game. Incredible. Yes. So, so it's hard to condense all that into just a definition, but there are like all these different points that I, I wanted to explain of what are the elements of mastery? What makes someone a master? And then talk about the strategies to get there. Okay. And um, were you going to say something about that? We can talk about the strategies as well. So one of it is studying the masters. So studying and emulating the people that we admire so much. And this is a strategy that um, I think I got it from Stephen King. He said, study the great writers and try to write like them. It doesn't matter that you're imitating them at first because and soon enough, you're going to shed those skins and then your true expression is going to come out. But at the beginning, that's how we learn. We study the best and when we try to do that. And centuries before King, um, Benjamin Franklin was doing that. He was taking these pieces from, I believe it was the, the Spectator, and trying to recreate them from memory and then look at both and see where he made the mistakes. Uh, doing his words become a tolerable English writer. <laughs> right. Right. Wow. Yes. And is the idea, so when, when, you, when you master something, no matter what it is, is it specifically for that skill or are you able to bring some of those techniques into the real world itself and apply some of those techniques to normal life? Do you get into you can. that? I think a big part of it would be the discipline. So if you master one sport, if you became really good at certain art and there is a process that you had to go through that was humbling, that also required discipline, that requires sacrifice. So those can become in, it, in their own way, a meta skill. It's like, I know how to make sacrifices. I know how to go through the struggle. I know how to get through the obstacles and that you can apply to anything else in your life. And also you can transpose certain skills. So there's this example from Josh Waitzkin. He was a, a major chess champion and also a push-up champion. And he transposed a lot of what he learned in chess into martial arts. So for sure, you, you can do that transposition, but it does require that you actively see how you can apply what you learn in one skill to then apply it in another. Another point is that when we learn a skill, in reality, we're learning a lot of different skills that when put together, we consider them as a specific craft. Let me give you an example for that. So if you're learning cooking, then you're learning how to use a knife, so knife skills, and then the use of different flavors and spices and cooking times, things like that. So each of those are a skill in itself, like a sub-skill. It's only when we put them together that we recognize it as the school of cooking. So in reality, we're just putting all these beats and pieces. Same with martial arts. If you're studying jujitsu, you have arm locks, leg locks, um, chokes, and stuff like that. They're all different sub-skills that you learn, put together, and then it's considered the art and martial art of jujitsu. Got it. Very cool. Um, what about habits? I know that's a big part of, of what you yes. cover. Yeah, I do talk about habits as well in the sense of creating the the practice habit. So one of the ideas is making the practice uh, not have any resistance. Well, there's always going to be resistance, but you're trying to minimize it. So for someone that likes running in the morning, having your clothes ready the night before, 
So when you wake up, it's one less decision to make. So you're trying to avoid any point of resistance, any point that is going to make you ask yourself the question, do I feel like doing this today? <laughs> you're trying not to think really. You're like, okay, I'm, I'm going there and that's it. So that's, that's one of the things. Also, something that in psychology is called implementation intentions is deciding when and where you're going to do something. So for me, it could be when I was writing the book is I'm going to wake up, I exercise right after I exercise, I go to my Starbucks and write for two hours or a thousand words, whichever comes first. So that was my when, where, how I'm going to do it. Okay. And when you know those things in advance, it just makes it much easier. You're just going straight. You already made that plan. So you create rules for yourself and that helps you build a habit. Because in the end, that's what you want to do. You want to be able to do it every day and put in the effort because that's what requires for you to learn anything and then to eventually master it. What happens if people fall off the wagon and say they skip a day or they skip two days? Yes. How crucial is it to pull things back as soon as you can to get back on track? That's really important. I, I got this idea from James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits. And he talks about, look, if you miss one day, don't worry about it. Um, we all do it, but never miss two days in a row. Hmm. So his rule is if you miss one day, that's okay. Don't be hard on yourself, but never miss two days in a row. I thought that was fascinating. And I tried to apply that in my own life. In, in exercising, in writing. And I have kind of this, this rule which says, if I'm going to take the day off, then really take it off. Stop thinking about how bad you feel that you're not doing it. Because if you're going to spend all day thinking, I'm not exercising, I'm not exercising, I'm not exercising, then you might as well just do it. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> now it becomes this annoying thing in your mind. So just really take a break, <laughs> really stop. But then make sure it's not two days in a row. I thought that was a like great a lot. solution. It's a great rule. That's what's going to help you from going to something that's been referred to as the what the hell effect. The what the hell effect is already missed two days this week. Well, what the hell? I'm going to start next week or next month, next year. And <laughs> that's what happens. you're trying to avoid. But to turn a small, a small sidetrack into a complete derailment. You want to stop right there. It's like, okay, fail once. Doesn't matter. Everyone does it but not two days in a row. Nick, what do you say to people who are struggling? Um, and I, you know, I put myself in this category, you know, with certain things in my life where you just, they can't seem to find the inner strength to make the commitment. Um, say they want to stop smoking and they say, uh, you know, next year on January 1st, I'm going to stop smoking. And then that day comes and goes, um, how do, how do you help people kind of rein things in to get that confidence to, to even start, let alone being consistent with your habits? Mm -hmm. Well, smoking will be as, as a very special example because there is the chemical component of it. So you have, you create this dependency. So it's harder to stop smoking than let, let's say start exercising because you have an addiction to the nicotine and then your body's craving it. So that, that creates an extra, an extra problem there. Um, so I wouldn't be able to talk much about that because I, I don't have the, the knowledge to deal with the, the chemical side of it. And I guess for smokers, there's the patch and there are different things that they can do. And sometimes just breaking a habit could be harder than creating one. The idea is you're not trying to break a habit, you're trying to replace it with something else. 
So that's one strategy that I think uh, smokers use. Like instead of whenever you feel like a cigarette, then chew some gum or, or something like that. So there are two different strategies. One is breaking a habit. Another one's creating a habit. For creating a habit, I think the, the best thing is first consistency and then focus on the intensity. So first you just want to be consistent with it. Try to do it as often as you can, even if it's for a little amount of time. And as you become more consistent, then you add the intensity. The problem is sometimes people say, okay, I'm going to start a gym. It's going to be five hours today. Like, no, after a week, you're going to be burned out and then you're never going to go back. I also disagree with that idea of like, well, just flush one tooth. And then you'll realize that once you do one, then you do all the rest. Yeah, but then your brain catches up and then it knows that once you do one, you're going to do the rest. So no, just might as well just say, okay, then I'm going to floss three times per week. Like just try to find that consistency. And then you decide on when, where, how you're going to do it, that implementation intention. First focus on consistency, then you go into intensity. And that's the way you start building a habit. Now habits can take anywhere from 20 days to six months to build. Um, it's, It's not that simple, but then if you stick with it, you'll notice that at one point it becomes a routine. It becomes something that is easier to do than not to do. For me, sometimes I get it in exercising to the point where it's just easier to exercise than not to. I'm part of it because what we were talking before, you feel so bad that you're not doing it. You say, okay, let's just do it. Let's do it. And I stop this (laughs) self-loading. And you're trying to get to that point where it's just a routine and it does get easier with time. That's something important to mention that, the um, kind of the cycle takes a little bit to get started, but once you get started, once you get better, it's easier to stick with it. You, you build momentum and it's just easier, just like a car. Yep. It's just easier to keep it rolling than at first to get it started. I love that. I uh, listened to Ed Milet. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he's a motivational yeah. speaker. I had a chance to interview him as well. That's one of the things he talks about all the time is momentum. And the need to continue to, you know, build and keep that momentum. Because once you, once you stop, just like, you know, that second day taking off, you really lose momentum and it's so hard to get back to where you were. Uh, so I'm glad you brought that up. Now, exactly. you, you touched on practice uh, earlier. Was there anything more about practice um, that you wanted to touch on that's, that's different than, than what you said earlier, as well as what's the different, my question was, What's the difference between practice and creating a habit? Sure. Uh, Let's take one step back. Just, I wanted to add something to your last point Um, of doing things, uh, of keeping momentum. One of the reasons I try to write every day and to exercise every day is because I find that when I stop, it's harder to start again. So I think it was Andy Warhol that said, it's either every day or never. So I don't do long workouts, but I work out every single day. And, and I do it also because it keeps me sane. Like there is this mental health benefit to working out and then to writing the same thing. And sometimes we, we turn one thing that we love and it starts feeling like work. So I noticed that with writing when it felt like, oh, I have to do this. And then one day I asked this question and this is kind of an idea that I've been developing and I would like to get your, your input on it as well. Sure. So I was thinking, well, I was having the resistance to writing and one day I thought, what would be my ideal day? And I'm not talking about in the sense of like an ideal vacation day, like I'm waking up, no, like a normal, but ideal day. And I thought, well, my ideal day would include something physical, uh, some reading, some writing. 
and that kind of gave me that insight is wait if my ideal day would include writing why would i stop <laughs> it's actually something i want to do yeah. it's just that at one point we forget that we like it and we just treat it as as a job like i have to sure. it's not yeah. i have to is I, is I want to i love if, that i got the choice of designing my perfect day it would include writing so why am i not doing that every day why would i need to take a break yeah. That makes no sense. We don't want breaks out of the things that we really like. <laughs> so that's the other reason why I try to keep it going. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, uh, and that actually gives me some inspiration because I try to write every day as well. And sometimes there's those days where it feels like a chore. But when you reframe it a little bit like you just did, that, that in itself could just change your perspective on, okay, I do. I, I really enjoy this. Why, why wouldn't I want to do it? Yes. Why wouldn't I? Same with exercising. So as much as resistance that I feel is, well, but I wouldn't want a life without exercising. Right. <laughs> so why am I complaining? <laughs> it's yeah. funny. I, I've uh, been doing intermittent fasting for yes. quite a while. And, um, you know, some people, when I talk to them about it, they're like, oh, it's not healthy or whatever they may say. And, but I enjoy it. You know, I, I like it. I, my days are better when I fast versus when, when I don't. So I like it too. That's a habit that I created um, because a friend of mine told me about it and I looked into it and I researched it and I tried it Mm -hmm. and I found that I had more energy and I found that I was able to keep the weight off and I just enjoyed it. So (laughs) when there is a day, like a cheat day, I don't even like the cheat day anymore. Like I don't want to do the cheat day, but it, yes. it, it's kind of funny how these habits that we, we create for ourselves could actually become our best motivators. Yep. You know, that reminds me of what is the name? Um, Penn, Penn Gillette, the magician guy, the famous magician from Penn and Teller. Oh yes. And he has, and he dropped an incredible amount of weight. And he said, I did it by eating the stuff I want. (laughs) I'm like, what? And then I looked into it and he said, well, the thing is what people don't tell you is that after a while of eating healthy, that's what you want to eat. That's what you're craving. And, And that's why for a lot of people, it's a struggle because they think they're giving up all these things they love. And what they don't tell you is, look, after a month, you're not going to even want them. So there are a lot of things that I don't need anymore because I don't miss them. And if I eat them, I'm like, well, now this is disgusting. There's right. so much sugar. Like I hate it. But if someone had told me you have to give this up when I was getting started, I would have said, no, like, way. no, way. <laughs> right. no way. Yeah. So that's one of the things people say, well, I don't want to work out for the rest of my life. No, no, no. Wait, after a while, you, your body's going to ask for it. And then it's something that you just take on and it's part of your life. So that, that's an important point. Sometimes we see things as a drag. And then we realize, well, this brings so much into my life that this is what I want to do. That shift in perspective. Yes. Love it. I don't want to lose your your question uh, in the air. So you asked me about practice. Yeah, no. Yeah. Was there anything more that you wanted to um, talk about when when it comes to practice? And really, I was trying to understand the difference between, what's the difference between forming a habit and practice? Well, habits is just to create the practice habit. Is, is the idea of incorporating practice into your life so you can do it every day and improve. Now, practice itself is different. And I think the biggest lesson here is that repetition is not practice. 
So if you play guitar and you know a few songs and every day you sit down and you play the same songs and you're not trying to make them better, that's not practice. Okay. That's performance. You're performing. You're executing what you know how to do. Practice requires that we push ourselves, that we struggle, that we try to do better than we used to do. And that's not always comfortable. That's why it's, uh, it's challenging for people. That's what's called deliver, deliberate practice. You're stepping outside your comfort zone, trying to get better. So imagining the same idea of playing guitar, staying with that example, if you put the metronome at a faster speed and now it's difficult again and you're making some mistakes, now you're in practice. Like you're trying to improve, you're trying to get better. But if you're just playing at the same tempo, you know, the same song you've been playing forever, you're not trying any harder to improve. That's not practice. That's performance. Wow. So that's the biggest difference. Yeah, I'm so glad you explained it that way because now it's actually a lot more clear. If I was to put you on the spot and say, okay, Nick, if I hired you as a coach and I'm saying, okay, I, I like to podcast, you know, I interview people all the time, but it is pretty, you know, repetitive. Um, what can I do to get better at that? What practice techniques can I take to potentially improve or, or you know, get better at practicing the skill of podcasting? Yes, sure. Uh, it could be many things. So one, we could start with studying the masters. So we'll take the best interviewers, see what they do, how they do it. Then we divide it into different subskills. There is body language, there is, there is um, your voice. So learning to have command of your voice. So breathing, uh, better breathing, better projection, um, the resonance, all these different things, because since you're dealing in podcasts, then all people hear is your voice. There is so much there, like your identity is presented in your voice. So that'll be like one sub skill. So body language, which is important still to express yourself, even if people can't see it, then the voice projection, um, and then decide of like, what are the questions that I'm asking? How am I interviewing? Then you study the masters. What do they do? Why do they do that? Does that, imp- does that improve the conversation? How do I make people comfortable? So then that's the connecting part. So we will divide it into sub skills and then start tackling each one. And a, a big, an important part would be doing something that is called bridging or integrated practice. So you practice in isolation, but then at one point you're going to have to perform. The thing is that the jump between practice and performance is too big. We need a step in between. That step is simulation, the bridging. And the way we do that is use, you'll start doing interviews, like mock interviews with friends, using the skills that we've been practicing and developing. Wow. It's just so everything comes integrated without the high risk, the high stakes of interviewing like someone that's very popular and then you know it like this. This is a big guest. I can't mess it up. And now your mind is in different places at the same time, trying to concentrate on, on the skills you were learning and implementing them, but also not messing up. So no, you want to step in between, which is a safe kind of practice, but that it feels like the real deal. So yes, you go through this process. Practice, bridging, performance. Love it. Wow. Great. Thank you. See, and I, I love asking these questions because I learn from the best. People like you who have all these wonderful skills and now our listeners, hopefully they could take that same instruction and apply it to their world, right? If they don't podcast, maybe, you know, maybe apply it to their work or to their relationships or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So thanks so much for that, Nick. That's great. Welcome. There's one extra point that I wanted to add there. And this has to do, since you said that you help authors to write their books this is a big one that comes up for people that do certain crafts like writing where 
a lot of writers don't practice. What they do is they perform. They're writing the actual book they want to write instead of doing writing exercises and writing practice. So there is a difference. And that's why it's one of the skills that it takes a long time to develop because you're trying to learn it as you're performing it. So let's say you want to learn writing, but then you're writing your novel. That's not the way. You also need to do some exercises. Hey, let's try to describe different characters, people that come into the Starbucks what I'm writing and describe them. So that's going to make me better at describing characters. So you use these prompts and these different exercises to improve your writing craft versus your writing product. So that's the difference. You can improve your writing skill and then you can improve your actual book or your actual piece of writing. And that's a difference that a lot of people don't make. And different skills have the same idea. It's you can improve the finished product, but you're not improving the skill. So in a skill such as writing, a craft such as writing, you have the process. How do you get better at writing? And then how do you make your book better? Those are two separate things and you need, you need to work on both. Wow. Important stuff, folks. So I hope everyone really took that to heart because that was that was a big one right there, Nick. Thank you for pointing that out because there's a huge difference between uh, practicing and, and then actually living in, in that skill itself. Mm -hmm. um, what about memory? You touched on memory earlier. Yes. Anything more about memory that we didn't cover that you'd like to? Yeah, we can talk about memory. Um, the main thing to discuss on the subject is there's a big difference between recognition and recall. So recognition is an easier process for the brain. And let's do a practical example. Let's say you meet someone at a party, person says the name, it's all good. Then you meet the same person a week later. You recognize the person, you recognize the face, but you can't remember the name. What's happening? Well, recognition is much easier. You're seeing the face and you're running that face against your database. Have I seen this person before? Yes, I have. So you're running an actual stimulus against what you, all your experiences from the past. But the name, you're not seeing it anywhere. You're not hearing it and it's not reaping anywhere. So that's why it's harder. You need to recall the memory um, of that name. So recognition is much easier than recall. When people say I'm better with faces than with names, it's not just them, it's everyone, because <laughs> it's a much simpler process. So the same happens with learning. You read a book, you understand everything, and if you flip through the pages again, like, oh yeah, I remember this, I remember this. No, you're recognizing it. You only know that you remember it if you can tell it to someone else without looking at it. So if you could teach the lessons to someone else, if you could tell them to yourself without looking at the book, that's when you know you internalize the information. But otherwise, people make that mistake of studying for exams, for example, they, they go through the material and they say, oh, well, yes, I remember this. No, 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 you're recognizing it. You're familiar with the material. Doesn't mean you mastered the material yet. So that's the biggest difference we need to make when talking about memory. There's recognition and there is recall. We're supposed to work harder on the recall because that's what makes you internalize uh, the knowledge. Another big one is the, um, the difference between memorizing location of things and the actual things. So in our age, it's very easy to access books, websites, videos, all those things. So earlier we talked about first aid. Mm -hmm. so let's imagine you read a book on first aid and you dog ear the page and you underline the important parts and you put it back in your bookshelf, but then you're on the street and someone needs first aid. It's useless to know where the book is, <laughs> right. which page to review, where is the underlining? No, you need the information there. So we need to remember 
that mastery happens within us, not outside of us. Books and all external forms of memory are a great advance of our race, but we need to also internalize the knowledge. Otherwise, it's very limited. And how do we do that, Nick? So, and I'm just thinking about, you know, I have my favorite books that I read and I like yes. to go back and read them and I underline things and highlight them. And, and then I read it again. I say, oh, that's right. You know, I forgot that. Mm -hmm. What can you give us a, a, a tip or two on what can we do to help internalize that to memory, you know, so we can remember at the moment that, you know, someone does need CPR. That's right. I remember on chapter three, I need to do this right now. Yes. So two things that are important there. One, it's, um, this is called practice retrieval. And it's just a formal name for testing. Trying to recall the information on your own. So let's say you read a, a chapter and at the end of the chapter, you can write some questions for yourself. So instead of reviewing the chapter, you go to the questions and see if you remember the material. And if whatever you don't remember, then you review it. Another version of um, practice retrieval could be teaching it to someone else. So without looking at the book, you say, you call a friend and say, hey, let me, let me teach you about this thing that I, that I learned Ooh, and see like what you that. remember and what you don't. That's and then what you don't remember, then it shows you what are, where are the gaps in your knowledge and it tells you, oh, I need to go back. It doesn't matter if you don't remember it. So this is, this is a part that is really important. It's counterintuitive. If we make mistakes and we can't remember something, it actually helps us in the learning process okay. because it's the effort in trying to recall the information that is strengthens the knowledge after we review it. So let's say I can't remember, there is a, a liquid that we have in our shoulder that helps us rotate. When I was taking the exams in high school about bones and bone structures, all these things, I nailed everything, but I failed my exam because I couldn't remember that liquid. And today is the only thing I remember, <laughs> the name of the liquid. Of course. Because yes, it makes such an impact that you failed at the question. And when you have to review it, now your attention is fully focused on remembering that thing. <laughs> I have to tell you, that, that just triggered a thought of mine. I don't know. You're probably too young. Do you remember the show, The Honeymooners? I know what it is. I've seen some, yes. Yeah, so, so there was this one episode with uh, Ralph went on this game show. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a trivia show. And it was for, I don't know what it was, $118,000 or whatever. And, um, but prior to that, Norton, his friend, kept singing this song. And it was bugging Ralph so much called Stormy River. And he kept humming it. <laughs> so it happened time and time again throughout the episode. He kept humming it and, and even singing it. And it was really upsetting Ralph. So he gets to the to the game show and it's time he, he, he makes it all the way up and now he has the most important question and they say what is the name of this song and they play it it's stormy river and he can't remember it but <laughs> just like your shoulder uh, <laughs> example it's the same thing and man it was such a funny episode but it's it's these things that we're constantly here if we're not in tune to it sometimes yes. it's so obvious but then we really have to internalize it. We do have to. And some strategies that help with that is making the information relevant and how we could apply it in our lives. So give them some use, which makes it personal, right? And that's going to help us remember. So make it emotional, make it personal, make it useful. And just those few things are going to help you memorize anything much better. So one of the things about memory, and sometimes people say, well, I have a bad memory. No, you don't. 
It's just you've been using your memory the wrong way. So an analogy would be if I give you a wheel, but then you put it on its side and push it. Like you'll get it where you want it to go, but that's not the way to do it. So it's the same thing. We have this amazing feature, like our memory is so impressive, but it's just that we're not using it in the right way. It's just a matter of learning how to use it. Not about having a better memory or having a bad or a good memory. It's just about learning how to use it. So Nick, I have to ask you, why are you so fascinated with all this? What, what in your DNA, what was it in your upbringing? What fascinates you about learning so much? two parts one was with my family so my dad was very against uh, material stuff so luxuries and things like that so he would go hey dad uh would you buy me a nice watch he's like no would you buy me nice clothes like no and it's not like we, we were missing something like we, we were well off and yes if we needed something we'll get it but nothing that was like beyond what we would consider normal like no why would you want an expensive watch just a regular one would do fine so it was very against those things. And, but then anything that was learning related was a yes. So I'll go that, would you get me a, this very expensive watch? No, this very expensive clothes. No, could you buy me a car? No, would you send me to the US to study music, which is gonna cost way more than anything I just described? Yes. Wow. So learning became my type of luxury. Wow. So I would just take on classes about anything because that's what, that was the no limits. Like whatever you want to learn, we'll pay for it. And it didn't matter if they knew I was going to drop it in a week. It's just, they were fueling my creativity and my curiosity. It's like, whatever you want to learn, go for it. You want classes, martial arts, go for it. You want music, go for it. All those things was never a no. So all the money they reserve, they reserve for education and for learning. So that was on the family side. Then the other one was my high school. I attended a very different kind of high school, middle school and high school than most people. So if you may be familiar with the Montessori, which is a different sure. kind of educational system. Yes. So my high school and middle school was like Montessori on steroids. Okay. We didn't have any teachers. We studied on our own. So we were giving study guides and we had tutors. So if we had a question about the material, then we would ask them what we would not have lectures. What that means is we were learning on our own. And this is a method based on it's called the Hellenic method and is the idea of how Socrates used to teach. Okay. He had the belief that we all had all the knowledge in the world and it needed to be drawn out through questioning instead of being imposed. So for me, learning became something that grew within me instead of being imposed on me. So that to me, high school and middle school were fascinating. I was learning physics on my own, like, what? This is, this is so cool. Like you're telling me like this pulley does this force and this thing. And I'm studying on my own. There's no one teaching me. So learning became very personal, very within me. Is there any interaction with your, with your peers? Uh, yes. So you're in a classroom in a way, but everyone's in, imagine like an office where everyone has their own cubicle. Wow. They're all studying on their own. But if you have a question, could you over and say, John, look, I'm looking at this pulley. What do you think? Do you think it's doing this? Yes. You can. Yeah, you, you can. But you would ask the tutors. So I see. In each classroom or like each office space, there will be one person that knew about all the subjects. He'll be like the equivalent of a teacher. Mm -hmm. Whenever like I wouldn't understand something, I'll go up to them and be like, hey, I don't, I don't understand this. Can you please explain it? And they'll help you, but they'll try to help you through questioning. Same idea. It's not like here it is, like let's, let's figure it out. So learning was also always this process of discovery. It was never a drag. And that's what I think fuels so much of my learning. I became fascinated 
by the world because it was never like this drag thing. Oh, I have to go to class and, and it's boring. Then the school, and this also influenced me about the idea of learning and mastery. They had the belief of excellence. Every single subject you studied. So let's say 10th grade math had 13 different subjects for each subject. You had to take an exam and you would only pass with 90% or higher, nothing less. But the thing is, if you fail the exam, they say, doesn't matter. Made a mistake. You didn't quite get the, the content. Let's go back and restudy. So you would go back to the material and restudy and then take a different exam about the same subject, but a different exam until you got it. So the philosophy of the school was never leave gaps in knowledge. You had to master everything you studied. So I think all those things growing up within my parents, um, promoting all the learning and was like an open, open check, like a blank check for everything learning, learning related. And the fact that learning was this process of discovery instead of a drag throughout middle school and high school, that just made me fascinated. Uh, everything has its own magic and I want to learn it all. Like sometimes weird things I took on flying lessons. <laughs> That's because I saw a plane passing by and a friend said, it must feel good flying a plane. Like, yeah, it must feel good. Yeah. yeah. And then next week I was signing up for flying lessons. Dad. <laughs> I went into beer brewing and to this day, like all the money I spend and all the time I spend is on learning. That stuck with me. I have no passion for luxuries other than learning. That's fascinating. Well, Nick, I've interviewed a hundred and I don't know, 75, 80 people in the last three years. And uh, you're very unique. No, I, I've never talked to anyone that has had uh, this career path and learning path that you did. So, so grateful that we connected and that that you shared this with us. And I think it's going to open a lot of people's eyes. Um, And I'm sure like me, they're going to want to dive into your book because I'm sure it's full of, you know, a lot of gold as I like to call it. Um, I hope it's going to help them a lot. I had someone ask me the question about the, uh, the book launch. And I said, yeah, well, it's coming out. And he said, well, you don't seem that excited about it. Like, well, the actual launch is not the part that gets me excited. What I'm excited about is hearing back from people when they start using this material and how their lives change. Maybe they had this, the, the main concept about the book is sometimes people have these frustrated dreams. Maybe they wanted to play guitar and someone told them, well, you don't have what it takes or you're not good at this. Or they wanted to paint and they think they can't. And the whole premise of the book is you may think you can't because every time you're seeing the performance, the end result, you're reading the book after so many drafts. If you could read the first draft, you realize I could do this too. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's horrible. Someone read the first draft of my book. They'll say, wow, <laughs> terrible. I could do that too. <laughs> so the idea is trying to inspire people by showing them the method behind the magic. So the magic is the performance. We see a quarterback playing a championship game, a virtuoso cellist playing the concert, and we think, I could never do that. There is a method behind it. You're not seeing it. If you could see it, you'd realize you could do it too. In a way, it is exactly like magic. You see a magician, vanishes a card, makes it reappear somewhere else. And you're like, wow, that's impossible. But if you could peek behind the illusion, you would find a method that you could do it too. That's what I'm trying to do is show you the process, show you the method behind the magic, letting you know, yes, it is within your reach. You just need to learn how to do it. So inspiring. 
Nick, what, what was uh, the biggest lesson that you learned through the process of writing this book, if you could sum it up? For the writing itself or the uh, research that I did? Everything, the, whole, the entire process. Yes. Because to me, the biggest lesson was uh, what I was explaining of seeing that there is a method behind everything. And it's just a matter of learning that method. And society wants to show us the finished product because that's what's glamorous. So we see the guitar player on stage. We don't see them playing scales alone in a room. <laughs> we see Roger Federer playing the championship game, but not practicing his backhand for hours and hours at a time. Because that's boring to us. We just want to see the very top. And that usually accounts for a very small portion. So if you dream about being on stage, then you also have to dream about practicing scales because one is not going to come without the other. And playing live, for example, a musician, it, it accounts for very little of what's really learning an instrument. But once you understand that process, it gives you that hope that, yes, you could do it too. And I think that was the most eye-opening with the story of, like you're saying, Bolt and seeing him, how hard he trains. He's not, we, we tend to think that he's just a, a, like a gene freak. And no, he mostly is just freak. <laughs> the amount of work that he puts in. And when you see them struggling, it's like, I could do this too. That is, that is the biggest thing. They're human, awesome. just like us. Awesome. They just do the work every day. So important. Nick, if you were to take out your cell phone and call the 20-year-old you, what would you tell him? Uh, a couple of things. Uh, I've thought about that before. One is that it, in the end, it's all about people more than anything else. So that's everything we do and everything we are, it's, it's in response or trying to inspire people or trying to respond to people. If there were no people on this planet, like if it were just you, you will go insane. So even if it's uh, you're writing a book or you're making music, it's you, but it's also everyone else is how all the music is received. It's the connections that you make is your family, is your friends. In the end, that's really what matters. And I think at the beginning or my 20 year old self will be too focused on this idea of success, living on borrowed dreams about making money. And no, like if you're making money, trying to help others, sure. And, and that's something that I struggle with right now. Cause I could, I've worked very little because what I did in my business life allows me to have a lot of free time. And what keeps me working is what's the point of me being able to live a better life when people around me are still struggling. So, well, try to make a little bit more just to help them, but it's, it's not losing perspective, not falling into that idea of, well, I need to have this huge house or buy a new car or stuff like that. Like, it's fine if you want to go after money, but it, there needs to be a deeper purpose. And to me, it, it's people. So if I could talk to that 20-year-old, is hey, focus more on the relationship side than in all the other projects that you think are important. That in reality, they're just borrowed dreams. Some, sometimes someone said, this is what you should be striving for. And it's not true. I think one of the biggest also is just working on a craft. I think hobbies, they, they give so much to our lives. They can be our life companions. They could be our way of not like lowering stress. They bring happiness. I wouldn't know what I would do without my hobbies and passions. Like they shine light through the dark cloud that insists on looming over me. So I deal a lot with mental health issues. It just, and 
hobbies and exercise they keep me sane they're the things that i want to do like it's writing or it's playing guitar and i don't i feel bad for people that don't have those hobbies that are just working on trying to make money or something like that or if they don't read or they don't have an instrument to play i, I don't know what they're going to do later in life i i used to see my dad and once he retired he didn't know what to do with his time i feel bad about it it's like yeah you never cultivated a hobby or anything so it's so it's hard later in life because that's the things that are going to stay when everything else goes away it's your relationships with people and then the things you're passionate about your hobby yeah. so, so, so it's glad a you great st- time to start doing that yeah especially now with the pandemic and everything that's the people good. that have hobbies are the ones that are coping the best with it yeah and look at here we are on a saturday afternoon mm-hmm. um you know both of us don't we don't have to be doing this we're doing this yes. not only for ourselves but for others and oh i'm so glad you talked about the hobbies because that's that's something i'm passionate about is helping to inspire others to to do that to pursue something so yeah. you don't have to be sitting around eating doritos and you know <laughs> drinking coca cola on a saturday you could do something you really love and enjoy so thanks for bringing that up nick this has been great uh, one last question that i ask every guest sure. and um, you you're you're very young you still have a lot of life to live but at the end of the day what do you want your legacy to be what do you want what mark do you want to leave on this earth i think it goes back to the idea of people if if at the end of my life i can recognize that i improve other people's lives then that will be the satisfaction to me and i notice that even today i have a very hard time feeling happiness on my own feeling good about stuff um, i carry a lot of darkness and that's but that's i don't feel bad about that it's just kind of in the nature and i do feel that there's a lot of value into what have been labeled as negative feelings or negative emotions no everything we created came from either frustration or <laughs> not being happy with the status quo so inventors they were frustrated by things so there's a lot of value also in, in embracing that darkness if we feel really bad about ourselves it tells us something needs to change but i notice that i get the most satisfaction in life when i see the people that i care about smile so if late in life i could say hey maybe i could not make my life better maybe i could not make myself smile more on my own but i always smile when i made others smile and that was what it's all about sometimes just living for one single person that's enough it doesn't have to be millions you don't have to inspire or to change millions of people's life it could be just one and that's all it is well nick velasquez you inspired one today and you're going to inspire many more Thank you so much uh, for coming on to the show today. Welcome to the American Real family. We're going to be Thank watching you real, me. real close. And I cannot wait to get your book. We'll put the link in the show notes as well. Awesome. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank Had a you. great time. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for tuning into American Real. Be sure to visit our website, AmericanReal.tv, or search for us on iTunes or YouTube for past episodes. While you're there, please rate us or leave us a review as that helps others find our show. I am truly grateful and appreciate all of your support. If you'd like to be part of our inner circle or want one-on-one coaching, check out the American Real Learning Academy, where we have self-help groups and courses so you can build the best you. We also have a new Facebook group where you can connect with high achievers from around the world. If you want to go even further, maybe you're determined to write your own book or launch your own podcast, contact me today to see if we can help. 
You can reach me through Instagram or Facebook or email me directly at roger at americanreal.tv. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you